Hello everyone, uh, welcome back. Appreciate you watching this video. Uh, I'm joined again with Pastor Kirby Tab of the Open Door Baptist Church in Brighton, Tennessee. Some of you may have seen our conversation we did a few months ago about the sons of God in Genesis, and I, I felt like we had a good uh, discussion. And obviously, we don't always agree on everything, but there are some things we should be able to talk about, have a real conversation and get us just taking a deeper look into what we believe. And not every difference is like a matter of uh, eternal life and eternal death. And um, there are some things that we can disagree on to a certain extent. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, dispensationalism. And those of you who uh, know my preaching, I often preach against dispensationalism. Uh, but at the same time, too, that doesn't mean I believe everyone who considers themselves a dispensationalist is a hellbound heretic. I believe there's a lot of good saved people in that world, but even um, the good saved ones, I still have some disagreements with them on that subject. I, th I personally think that dispensationalism is going to cause problems with your Bible interpretation and lead to... Uh, could lead to some pretty damnable heresies. And I also believe, in my opinion, that most people who are running to it today are doing it to prop up a predetermined view that they have about Israel and their future. And these are, right there's an area where there's probably definitely going to be some disagreement. And so uh, Pastor Tab and I are going to discuss those things today, and hopefully you'll get a lot of that out of this conversation. So uh, Pastor Tab, if you just want to start out too, saying, uh, you know, I guess your feelings about, you know, dispensationalism or being non-dispensational and, you know, the dangers you think that come with that and why you believe it's important to be right in your opinion about Israel. Yeah, dispensationalism, a lot of misconceptions about it. And uh, it's not a it's not a doctrine. It's a method. It's an approach to Scripture uh, whereby sound doctrine is learned. Uh, if you don't like the term dispensationalism, you can feel free to call it um, spiritual discernment uh, gained by observation. It's a self-authenticating reality. Uh, dispensationalism is not the product of invention. It's not the product of construction. It, it is the product of, um, of discovery or of revelation. Now, dispensational thought comes by way of Bible study. Uh, we're all familiar with the uh, quote, uh, the passage in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, saying to study, to, to command the study, study to show thyself approved unto God. It goes on to say, rightly dividing the word of truth in proper division is uh, rightly dividing the word of truth has to do with distributing the word of truth. I think there's places in the Bible that talk about even a lot of uh, Israel's inheritance being divided unto them. But before you can divide something, uh, you've got to categorize it and, and know what your process, what you're dividing, and it's going to note the differences and just it's just observing things that are different in the bible when it when to stop when to pause when to categorize and compartmentalize things and then when to start them up again and uh knowing when to do that now it comes by way of discernment and development of these things it's really is akin to wisdom 
Pro, uh, the whole book of Proverbs is written for that reason about how to process information and uh, equity, I believe, is mentioned there. And uh, it's one thing to have knowledge, but if you don't know what to do with the components of knowledge, you don't have understanding. And that's a that's something that you add to your knowledge, understanding, and then wisdom takes you further than that. And discretion and um, equity and justice and judgment, all of those are character attributes you don't get overnight. You, you don't learn them in a book. You develop into them. So it's about process of growth. Now, the Word of God is likened to food. Uh, there's the milk of the Word and the uh, meat of the Word. And uh, other places, it's likened to honey. And other places, it's even likened to bread. I'll give you a food example. The other night, my wife and I discovered uh, this great dessert dish called banana pancakes. And it's kind of a healthy alternative to some of the, you know, um, more unhealthy things. And so we, it starts with two, two eggs, two raw eggs, one ripe banana, and you just incorporate them things, mash them together. We use the blender and you, you can embellish it with a little, like a pinch of salt, maybe a little cinnamon, a little, um, a little extract or something, put that thing on a hot griddle. Now you have a liquid, you put it on a hot griddle and uh, turn it just like a pancake. Now that thing's delicious. And we were talking about, I said, this doesn't taste like eggs and it doesn't taste like bananas but of course the natural sugars and the bananas permeate throughout that thing and you've got the substance of the egg that gives it the body and uh, we're eating that thing and we're saying look how simple this is and i said to my wife i said what if i was to take these same components but what if i was to cook the eggs first what if i would would have scrambled these eggs first or fried them or even boiled them and then mashed a banana into that thing and added the other ingredients. I said, that would have been a very, very unpalatable. No one would want to eat that. What's the difference? It's the same ingredients, but it's the order in which we put them. It's recognizing that order. It's the proper sequence that mattered. And, you know, the end result is tragic with bananas and eggs, but even more so with scripture. Recognizing that is dispensationalism is dispensational thought. So um, hmm, I could I could go on and say some other things yeah. or just kind of let you comment. I mean, we haven't gotten to the meat of anything right. yet, but I figure I better pause for a minute. Right, yeah, and I want to say this too, because you know what you explained there, I think is what most people who consider themselves dispensational are trying to do. They are trying to just honestly take the scriptures and make sense out of everything. Obviously, things have changed throughout time, and we're not doing sacrifices anymore. And often there's people on my side who hear what I say about dispensationalism and stuff, and then they'll hear a preacher use that word, and then they automatically think he's a heretic. Um, and I don't believe that's right. I, I think there's many people who they're just using that term to explain uh, how they you know, their system of dividing up the scriptures. But the thing is, too, um, most people don't all subscribe to a specific form of that because you do have your uh, Ruckmanite version of dispensationalism. And a lot of people, when they hear that word, will immediately associate you with all uh, the crazy things that come with that. You know, you have the Larkin dispensationalism you know there's a lot you have hyper dispensations there's a lot of different versions of it out there and so um you know i rarely any so the thing is what it's easy for our side to do is whenever somebody uses that word 
we start talking about crazy Ruckmanite stuff, crazy stuff with Larkin that a lot of individuals probably don't believe in. And we, I feel like we rarely talk about the areas where there is actual disagreement. And so hopefully that's what we can do today and then maybe actually get somewhere. And I, But um, at the same time, too, um, again, I hear dispensational or someone else hears dispensational. There's automatic place where our minds go to about them. We're going to assume they think a lot of things. Some will be right. Some could be wrong. Uh, when you hear somebody who cl- like myself who claims to be non-dispensational, uh, and I don't know how familiar you are with all my teaching, um, you know, and again, everybody kind of defines that word differently, but, you know, what do you feel like the dangers are um, in just someone who says, I reject dispensationalism? And, uh, and, you know, I guess, what are your immediate thoughts about them? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm not prone, Pastor, to ad hominem insult and rhetoric and immature uh, emotional rants that some people categorize and call people things. But uh, this may be the harshest thing that I say since you asked, okay? Uh, I believe the result is shallow Bible teaching. Now, I've noticed something is... Uh, I've noticed something in the new IFB, and like I said, this may be the harshest thing I say. I'm not trying to uh, stigmatize you or anything because Mm -hmm. it may have been original from you. But I noticed within the realm of the new IFB, in order to get a clean bill of health in that crowd, you've got to be Mm non-dispensational. And you've got to adhere to certain things that... uh, kind of give a confirmation bias within that peer group, virtue signaling to people within your peer group. And it's putting yourself in a category against another crowd and things like that. And that's, you know, uh, peer peer acceptance, I guess, is important to a certain extent. But um, I, I would say there's nothing really new about the new IFB and that it's uh, in many components of the new IFB look like more like rehashed Roman Catholicism with some Baptist embellishments there. Um, and it turn it can turn into the danger of it is just this pharisaical propositional gated institutionalized formatted machinery that equates to taking away the key of knowledge. Now, I do believe that dispensational thought is the key, the, the interpretive key to the scriptures. And I've noticed uh, by speaking with you last time and some of the things in some of your material that I, that you teach to your church is excellent material. And But it seems to be advocating steering away from depth of Bible study. Uh, in staying at the surface and everything must be understood uh, about the scriptures in a surface level kind of thing. And you didn't get that from scripture. The scriptures demand that and expect us to, the Pauline epistles expect us to go deep. And that's where the spirit has convergence with our own reality. And we come to these conclusions, whether it's called dispensationalism or not, it's still observation and uh, the discernment that we get from that. Um, the biggest danger in that in, is where it takes you, and in, in it's old stuff, hijacking the promises of Israel and claiming them for the church. I see something else within the realm of the new IFB, and hey, it may be original with you. It may have started with you, but I noticed a lot of the guy, the guy out there in Arizona and some of the guys in Texas and you, 
anybody that has a uh, uh, plank wooden pulpit <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is, is um, saying they're anathematizing folks and saying they're unsaved devils and they're caught. There's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of ad hominem insult there. And I'm seeing that and it seems to be sort of like a virtue signaling tool within that group. And it's just uh, what you're doing to rally one another. But, um, you know, and it, if you give place to non-dispensational thought, you're going to, and I, you're going to complete everything. You're going to complete the Gospels, the resurrections, the judgments, the kingdoms, the raptures. I know we talked about the sons of God. Everybody that's the son of God, I guess they're all just Christians and conflating things like that. Now, I, I will say this. The biggest thing, of course, is Israel. Uh, that's the apple of God's eye. In the New Testament church, I, I know this is where we might, this could cause a bring a lot of discussion because I know that you're you do a good job at presenting your side of it I promise you that but uh the New Testament church is not an expansion of Old Testament Israel the house of Israel it did not crescendo into the New Testament church Israel me and you would both agree stumbled at Jesus Christ but church history has revealed that the body of Christ itself has stumbled at that Jew and I'm aware that, and I am aware in the realm of advocates for pro-Israel, pro-Israel advocates and also uh, pre-tribulation advocates that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. And uh, when you speak of Ruckman and Larkin, and that's not low-hanging fruit. Those are big boys now. I, I've got respect for them, but I do not agree with everything. But I can't speak for those men. I can only speak for what I've observed for myself and what I've observed from scripture. And uh, so the whether replacement theology is tenable or not really is not the question because it depends on what is being replaced and with what, whatever is being replaced, what's it being replaced with? Well, if replacement theology is the Old Testament being replaced with the new, then I'm in agreement and we both are. Hebrews 9 makes that clear. If replacement theology is the Old Testament, I mean, sorry, is is the law being replaced with Jesus Christ, I think it's Romans 10 verse 4 says that Christ is the end of the law. But if replacement theology means that uh, Israel has been replaced with the New Testament church, the body of Christ, that's a game changer. Uh, that's that's a that's a negative. Uh, so the, the Bible doesn't teach that. I know a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, and uh, you have a lot of information on that. And I'm I've considered that, and I'm seeing where where this thing does not connect. The disconnect is what you're is where you conflate the physical promises with the spiritual promises so that's pretty much what i'm seeing there and i know that's why we're probably leading to more discussion yeah okay yeah so first off um i don't have a wood plank pulpit uh my my pulpit is uh very different from your average new ifb pulpit uh second of all I am not in the new IFB. Um, I don't know if I rejected them first or they rejected me. Either way, I've got video proof of them all uh, saying they don't want anything to do with me. And I share those videos with people often to let everyone know I'm not a part of that group. So um, 
even though I, I, I do, but I do agree with them on a lot of things. And I do think, uh, yes, there definitely is a lot of condemning to hell, all that kind of stuff. And even most of the new IFB uh, will tell you that, you know, not all dispensationalists are unsaved and all that. Uh, but I will say too, good luck outside of, uh, from that group, finding them having uh, pre-tribbers preach in their church, dispensationalists preach in their church, or them preaching in a pre-tribber dispensationalist church. And uh, you can find both with me because uh, I am, I'm familiar enough with those positions. I'm familiar enough with both sides that I, I can recognize where there's just like an error um, that's not that big of a deal and where there is a big deal. I, I, and so I have lines that I've definitely drawn and uh, having a full understanding of those things. And so I do try to be careful in some of my rhetoric because I don't want to alienate all of them because, I mean, frankly, some of the best preachers I know, uh, some of the most godly men I know, some of the most influential men on my life are still uh, pre-trib and consider themselves dispensational. And uh, so, uh, and, and, you, and you rarely get a chance with these people, though, sadly, to have a real conversation about where the differences are. All they want to do is talk about the guy in Arizona and on all those people out there in Texas and California and stuff. And it's like, I'd rather not talk about them. Uh, let's, let's talk about where the difference are. So Israel. All right. So let's, let's go ahead and talk about that. And, uh, you know, we didn't really discuss exactly how we're going to, uh, you know, how we're going to do all of this, but I guess, um, maybe if I can start it off by asking a question for you that I feel like, I feel like dispensationalists, they don't address this and they don't have an answer to it. But um, I think where we have some major differences, the dispensational crowd, they always accuse us of saying God broke his promise, we, that we teach God broke his promise to Israel. Obviously, God can't break any promises. I think where the disagreement is, is how those promises were fulfilled. There's a lot of things dispensationalists are saying are still to come for Israel that I would say, and I think I have scripture proof, already came for Israel. But because there's a lot of things we define different, we do end up talking past each other a lot. And so uh, something that I like to ask people just to kind of help us make sure we're on the same page and so they fully understand where I'm coming from is, and, and this has been a really interesting study for me as I've been going through the book of Acts. But let's say that you are a first century Jew who gets saved on Pentecost. At what point did these people quit following Judaism? You know, at what point did they separate themselves from what they were a part of? I would say that they actually continued in what the, uh, what they were a part of. They were the ones who were obedient to the law of Moses because a key verse that I don't hear dispensationalists talk about a lot is in Deuteronomy 18:15, where it says, The Lord thy God will raise up a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hear. And we know that was talking about Jesus. Peter referred to this in Acts chapter 3. Stephen referred to this in Acts chapter 7. And in Deuteronomy, he went on to uh, say, And it shall come to pass in verse 19, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. 
So the thing is, if Jews do not listen to Jesus, it's going to be required of them. I would say the dispensationalists teach God's not going to fill that pr- promise. You know, they're saying God's going to break that promise. In Genesis 17, when he instituted the circumcision, he said, if you do not follow this, you're going to be cut off from among the people. That's that's a promise right there. I would say dispensationalists are saying God was bluffing and he's not going to keep that promise. But I believe that the way God fulfilled all those other promises and still kept that promise too was by uh, imputing the circumcision, imputing righteousness and the keeping of the law to those who are of faith, to those who were in Christ. And so he's able to keep both sides of those. He's able to keep all those good promises to those who are of faith because they kept all these things through Christ. But he's also able to keep the negative side and he's going to judge and he's going to punish and cut off all those who reject Christ. So the thing is, At Pentecost, all these Jews who got saved, they continued in what they were a part of. And then what I've heard some people call replacement theology is they like to call it more of an expansion theology because of the fact that uh, they started including the Gentiles in there. And so as all these Gentiles are getting saved, they are coming into that same body that was originally there. And then all of the Jews who rejected Christ, they got cut off from that vine. So that's why I believe we're a continuation of that church in the wilderness. And so um, to me, to act like the church is some new thing is to say that the Jews who were obedient to the law and received the Messiah somehow got cut off from what they were a part of when the Bible teaches the other way around. Okay. So I know there's a question in there. Pardon me for not. Oh yeah. So yeah. So the, yeah. So the question is, you know, did Jews who got saved and became a part of that new Testament church cease being of Israel? Um, and did they lose any inheritance? Yeah. yeah. No, this is what, this is what I'm observing from scripture. Okay. Mm-hmm. I believe that your answer is found in Romans chapter nine. They are not all Israel, uh, which are of Israel. How's that word? Yeah, they are not all Israel, Israel, which are of Israel. Okay. There's what I am seeing from that. Of course, we both see the same thing in Acts. Hey, this is a church, Pentecost. Okay. There is a transitional phase line that we're things kind of decrescendoed and crescendoed with uh, the law. Like, I think it's John chapter 1, verse 17 says that the uh, the law and the prophets were until John. I think it says it like that, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I may have packed mm-hmm. that up, but you're familiar. I, yes. with, mm-hmm. There's a convergence, uh, an overlap, if you will, because look at these Jews. They're going by the revelation that they have mm-hmm. in the... Um, New Testament, they're meeting at the temple. Of course, the temple was huge. They're over there on Solomon's porch. They're kind of, they didn't commandeer the temple, but they're meeting at the temple, but they're not going into the temple doing sacrifices or anything like that. They have, uh, they are, but they're eating, breaking bread. Now, here's a good question. Do you think any of them were eating pork chops? Mm-mm. I don't either. 
could they have? Yes, but they didn't know it. They nope. didn't know it. You're exactly right. right. And of course, we know now it's there's there's a there's a transition of of development and revelation being given. Even 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 the message of Acts two. That's where a lot of heresy comes from. Acts two thirty eight. Uh, that's a developing theme there, and they are still expecting. What's the last thing they asked Jesus Christ? In um, the disciples asked him in um, Acts chapter one. Will thou restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting. Don't you know when they stood watching Jesus Christ uh, rapture up that uh, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus will so come in like manner. That's a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. But don't you know uh, they believed it was right around the corner. Jesus, uh, Simon Peter in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, I believe it is, was saying, repent. And be converted that your sins may be blotted out at the, when the time of the refreshing of Jesus. They, what that doesn't sound like the message of salvation that he's preaching when he wrote the book of First Peter. Mm-hmm. Something changed then. He got some revelation from Paul, uh, and of course, Rev, uh, Galatians chapter one clearly shows that. And he learned some things from Paul, who got the revelation of the New Testament church, the mystery body. See, so there's a lot of moving parts to that. So. They're not all Israel, which are of Israel. The way I'm, what I'm seeing by that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 9 is that if I am a natural-born Jew, that is a Jew by, I'm a circumcised, uh, physical child of Abraham, physically, and I receive Christ as my Savior, I am now, I am of Israel, but I'm not recognized with Israel anymore. I'm recognized with the body of Christ now. That's why the book of Hebrews, I believe the book of Hebrews was written to save Hebrews because of their background. They had a much different background. They needed to know what becomes of our inheritance, our promised inheritance. Uh, you're in the body of Christ now. There's a it, it, Your inheritance will be um, under within that spiritual category. If that answers your question, I know that's okay. a lot of stuff there. Right. But yeah, well, first off, I think in Acts 2, what we see going on there is when Peter, he's he's preaching personal and national repentance because Israel, they were in danger um, of suffering as a nation because of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And they recognized that. Jesus had prophesied shortly before that on that generation was going to come all the righteous blood of Abel, uh, from Abel to Zacharias. And so they were in trouble as a nation. And in the book of Acts, early in the book of Acts, what you see is you see the apostles desperately trying to not just get individuals saved like you and I do today, but they were trying to, they were trying to save the nation. And the apostle Paul he was the same way. And, you know, he said, you know, my my heart's desire and pray to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I think they all understood judgment was coming for them, and they didn't want that to happen. And sure. in Daniel chapter 9, everybody ignores the first part of the chapter, but Daniel understands the judgment that's coming for Israel, and he's praying for God to take it away. And then the angel comes and tells him, no, this is determined. This is going to happen. It's going to come. So they really had a heart, a love for their nation, uh, but judgment was coming. And so all the individuals 
who put their faith in Christ, they got saved, they went to heaven, but the nation never repented and it was destroyed. And so you do see kind of a change in attitude because of the fact that I think the disciples, they finally figured out this nation's not going to repent. And then after the stoning of Stephen, we see God focus now, start focusing more on the Gentiles and those on the outside. And so what we see happening too throughout the book of Acts is they're always going to the Jew first. And I, you know, and I personally believe that the book of Hebrews, that is our, that's our book to understand the transition from the Old to the New Testament and how to interpret the Bible. And what the writer of Hebrews is clearly doing is he is he's teaching, he, he's proving to Jews that following Christ, no longer doing the sacrifices, no longer having a priesthood that, by the way, was an everlasting priesthood that God gave, that the Passover, these were things that were everlasting. The circumcision, it was an everlasting covenant. All of these things were stated that way. And so for Jews to hear that, start hearing this stuff doesn't matter anymore, that's going to be very difficult for them to accept. They weren't, you know, all these Jews in these other countries, they never saw Jesus. They weren't there for the resurrection. So they're going off to the testimony of these disciples. And so in Hebrews, the writer is just proving to them that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these things, and you are in no way violating the law of God to cease from these dead works and to just have faith in living God. After thousands of years of doing sacrifices, to come along and say, no more sacrifices, you know, that's huge. You know, that's what the Hebrews calls uh, the Reformation. And so in the book of Acts, you know, I, a lot of people kind of have that dispensational mindset where they're always kind of looking for that that point of time where the new dispensation came in. And the thing is, I think if you want to like put if you want to put a point in time when it all changed, as far as the things of the temple, I'd put it at the renting of the veil. Okay. Now here's the thing: I believe when the veil was rent. You know, that symbolized the end of the priesthood, the end of sacrifices, the end of the dietary laws. But God did not reveal that overnight. And as time went on, and as we watch the book, things progress in the book of Acts, we see them slowly figuring these things out. It was years before they you know, started going to the Gentiles, even though Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It took them a long time to accept these truths and to fully understand these truths. And it was the Apostle Paul who received the dispensation of the grace of God, which was not a new gospel, but the dispensation of the grace of God. And if you read the verses three out of the four, make it very clear what it is. And that is something that was not previously understood. Not so much that the gospel wasn't previously understood, but the inclusion of the Gentiles. That was hidden in other ages. They did not understand that even after the renting of the veil. Years into things, they didn't understand the inclusion of the Gentiles, but God revealed that to Paul. And that was that dispensation of the grace of God. So you do see, you know, God slowly revealing things in the New Testament. And, you know, now, uh, you know, it's it, I, I believe when you could say 
uh, the trans, I do believe Acts, you could say, is kind of a transitional book. Okay. I think you could say the fully, the full transition came to be at the destruction of the temple. Because even in Acts 21, you see the church in Jerusalem very actively involved in the things of the temple. We see uh, you know, them uh, doing a sacrifice for Paul, and Paul did that vow, and everything was going on. It turned to a big mess. They were not supposed to be doing these things at this point. But, they, but you know, I don't believe God was you know, he, holding them fully accountable yet because it's still kind of being revealed. And that, but at the same time, we see Paul constantly dealing with people wanting to go back to those rudiments of the world, to the elements, to the previous things of the temple. And God didn't want him doing that. And so God, Jesus Christ, destroyed that temple. He removed it, got rid of it, putting an end to those things, making it crystal clear. They should have got the message at the renting of the veil, but the Jews were very stubborn. And so finally, uh, he had, had to completely wipe it out. And, you know, th- that was it. You know, that, that was the transition. It's fully revealed now. So um, we see a lot of Old Testament things going on, even amongst Jewish Christians in the book of Acts. But I believe um, it's just because those truths were not fully revealed yet. You mentioned two things that... Um... I'll question you about it. And I'm, I'm, I think I know, but I don't want to misrepresent you. Let me find one was in Hebrews and the other one you said, oh, yes. Um, yeah. Paul's revelation of mm-hmm. the, yeah, it was of the Gentiles, which no doubt about that. Um, but you said it wasn't a new church, wasn't a new body. Um, I believe that you would say that the rep, I think it was in Romans. No, it's in uh, Hebrews nine. Mm-hmm. It mentions reformation. Right. I believe that you would say that that is a reformation of the church. Uh, rep, uh, it's a reformation of Israel. Yes. To the church. Okay. So it was um, a reformation. Yeah. It was a reformation of Israel, a reformation to the church in the wilderness. And so, Yes. So um, I, I believe that's what the New Testament church is. It's Old Testament Israel reformed. The reason I brought that up is that when I look at that, and I'm going just by my observations of the scripture, the context demands that it's the the reformation of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. It's the Old Testament. The, what, what was reformed, there's nothing about the church there. It is the Old Testament tabernacle being reformed by a better tabernacle which is seen in chapter 10 which is jesus christ Mm -hmm. and uh, the priesthood and the covenants that is a reformation but the church the reason i say it's this is where i believe that the 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 link that's that connects your ideology there's a disconnect Mm -hmm. uh this is where there's going to be disharmony in that flow is that uh, Every time you see the New Testament church, whether it's uh, with with Paul, let's see, how, how do I want to say this? When he speaks, of, okay, when Paul speaks of the New Testament, the revelation that was not seen before, mm-hmm. that it now the Gentiles are included. And I know he mentions that in, in Exodus, I mean, I'm sorry, Exodus, um, Ephesians chapter mm-hmm. 2, well, the middle wall of partition. Um, well, guys, I mean, uh, Pastor, that's not anything new. 
unless it's new. Because in the Old Testament, when you go back to you can go back to Exodus chapter twelve. If somebody wanted to take the Passover, a Gentile could do it as long as he became a proselyte. Jews had access to the Commonwealth of Israel all through the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They that was that body. You understand? Mm-hmm. They had access, and they were as one born. They were just as Jewish as a person that was born of the of the stock of Abraham. If they became Jewish proselytes by uh, were circumcised and mm-hmm. all of the other uh, things that were demanded of them, and I know you would agree to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, what what would be a mystery that Jews and Gentiles are in one body? Where you see. Jew, Gentiles being included in there, there's an expansion of the body of the house of Israel, uh, including now Gentiles, and they're incorporated into that body. Is what I'm seeing when I observe scripture is that it is one new man, Ephesians 2. That body, it's the same concept that Jesus said in Matthew 9. He said, You don't put a new cloth upon an old garment, mm-hmm. you don't put new wine, you've got to get a new bottle. You see, mm-hmm. that is that old cloth is Israel and it's still there and it's not going anywhere. It will be restored. They're going to be touching the skirt of the Jew in the future. And that skirt has to do with their lineage, just like that woman did uh, touch Jesus's garment and his skirt of his garment. And there's a lot there. Israel's a burning bush. They'll be consumed, but they will never go away. Right. The stock. So with that and one more thing, and, and as I'm looking at that, Paul even said, I, he was, you know, making an indictment against himself by his testimony in Galatians chapter one. He said, I persecuted the church. Mm-hmm. Now, what body was he a part of when he was persecuting the church, which was Christ's body? He, how could he persecute the church if he was already a part of that? That's what I believe that you're failing to see. You're mench- you're seeing um, that it's the same body. It's a different body. So there's a, a lot of other things. I know a lot of folks would, I'm sure you've dealt with uh, Matthew chapter 16. It's a new foundation, a new building. He says, upon this rock will I build my church. And that is that is a new foundation. Other foundation can no man lay that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's his body. So that's what, and there's other places, but mm. just to give you something to comment on, Right. Yeah. So there, yeah, boy, there's a lot there. So first off in Matthew 16, um, hit Jesus saying, and upon this rock, I will build my church does not imply a brand new building. Um, because what he said is consistent with what Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, where it says we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So, uh, and, he built, and he mentions how we're a, all part of a building and, you know, we're all as lively stones and a part of that building. And it's this, that uh, Ephesians that? chapter two. Okay. So you're saying, let me ask, let me get clarity on this. We're mm-hmm. in Matthew chapter 16. Uh-huh. Jesus said, up on this rock, will I build my church. Okay. And of course, boy, a lot of shot and shell hit the ground over that one over mm-hmm. the ages. Okay. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you and me may not be in agreement on who the rock is. Probably not. The, all that stuff. But we, is what, that's where, okay, we can park here for a minute if you want to between this and you mentioned uh, Ephesians chapter two, mm-hmm. saying that's the same apostle. Let me say the same apostle, the same foundation. 
Okay. It's the same building. And it's built upon the foundation uh, of the apostles. Peter's one of the apostles. Okay. Let's look at Ephesians 2 for a moment. Okay. And uh, the reason I stopped you is not to cut you off, but I don't want to lose track of that because I think it's, it's worth noting here. And we are in Ephesians. Let me find it. (laughs) Ephesians chapter two. And I can picture it, what you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints. And I'm going to tell you, uh, this is just me talking to my observation. Verse 15, that's one new man. It's one body, and it's not the same body. It's a new one, okay? It's one spirit. It's the new building. It's the new uh, um, church. And when you see this, when you see verse 20, are built upon the foundation of the apostles, I believe that you're seeing something that cannot meet the demands of Scripture. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're seeing that the apostles themselves are the foundation. That preposition of, that prepositional phrase will mess you up. It's it's not it's kind of like when we read Revelation, we see the, some some books title it the Revelation of St. John and some the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, whose revelation is it? You see, it's St. John is it's not about St. John. It's John given the revelation. The apostles here in verse 20 are not the foundation. It's the same apostles that they I mean, it's the same foundation that they are built upon. It's their foundation belonging to them but they are not it the rock jesus christ is the foundation and the reason we know that he's the chief cornerstone he's not yeah yeah but and and you got to understand he's making an illustration there everybody likes to go ultra literal with that but mm -hmm. it's it's a it's it's an illustration and it's so it's not it's not a problem if peter is a rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. Peter, I mean, he was the main spokesman at Pentecost when things really got going. And right here in this passage, when he's talking, you know, you're talking about the new man, but he's talking about making both of Twain. When he's referring to fellow citizens, the saints, he's referring to people from the past, those of faith in the past, and he's making one new man. We're all part of the same group, and we are. We are built upon that foundation of the apostles, which would include Peter, and, and prophets, uh, and just because Peter's a rock doesn't mean he has the preeminence. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And what's interesting about that holy temple in the Lord, you know, when you look at the New Jerusalem, you know, it's got the foundations, you know, that with the names of the uh, apostles and the gates of the 12 tribes of Israel you just see that inclusion through, uh, you know, you know, in there that I think lines up with what we see in Ephesians. So Jesus didn't start a um, a new building, you know, in Matthew chapter sixteen, but he was just showing, though, that you know, through Peter, that's how it was really going to be expanded, and and we we're going to build on that foundation. And so I do. I think the apostles, prophets. They're all part of that foundation, and it, and that building includes the saints, includes those of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, all those of faith. And so it's all one building. 
Pastor, that can't be the foundation uh, because the foundation, first of all, uh, we can discuss this in as much detail as you would like because it's so important to uh, where things are hinging. Uh, if you, Peter is not the rock. Jesus Christ is the rock of Matthew 16. And we'll, we can discuss that for a moment, but I'm uh, using just scientific analysis to show show what it must be and cannot be. All right, can you These, show me that in Matthew 16, that Jesus is the rock and not Peter, without adding to the scriptures, and that includes hand gestures? I can. Well, you're talking about this, using that yeah. demonstrative? Yeah, yeah. it's like, uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that's the way everybody preaches yeah. it. Where's the where's the hand gestures in the Bible? Uh, that's so funny. I, I get it. Uh, your your uh, conditional qualifier. I'm sitting on my hands, Pastor. Okay. okay? <laughs> um, he uses a near demonstrative, this rock. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of folks miss something though. I mean, there. I can generally exegete that thing, but man, we can go deep. You've got if you've dealt with Roman Catholics, you must really consider that. That's the bedrock of their doctrine. The, the, well, the Roman Catholics, but, they do like a lot of Calvinists. They'll make a true statement and then jump to a false conclusion with it. Right. But Peter's not the rock. Here's the why. Here's why. Jesus Christ says this, and this is we're dealing with um, the allowances that Scripture gives, okay? Peter just made a great profession. He's the one that spoke up and said, thou art uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice that Jesus just realized he had the key of interpretation. He had the, something that, that the Pharisees were taking away. Luke chapter 11, verse 52 says, you have, you lawyers, you have taken away the king, key of knowledge. You don't enter in yourself. And they're, they're, that's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm about to get real. Uh, this is detailed, but I'm just saying this. I'll, I'll be as general as I can and question me. If you need to, he then says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. I am saying that Jesus Christ is pointing to himself by saying this rock because he did it before. He uses that near demonstrative, and uh, I like to see convergence and harmony of the scriptures. Where Does Jesus use a near demonstrative concerning himself in other places in his earthly ministry that are right uh, what about John chapter two? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Was he pointing to himself or to Herod's temple? The Bible clearly shows he spake of his body. That's John chapter two, I think, verse nineteen. How about this? I think it's John chapter six, about verse fifty, right around there. This, uh, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Is he speaking of? Is he pointing to a loaf of bread or is he pointing to himself? Now, I believe you would agree that he's pointing to himself in both of those occasions using a near demonstrative. So we see that it's common practice with Jesus to use a near demonstrative. And upon this rock, thou art Peter. And upon this rock will I build my church. And the gates of hell will not, I'm not looking at the text. I don't have my glasses, but I think I've got it right. Will not prevail against it. Now you've got a, now you've got a uh, second person plural pronoun, it. Okay. It. What's the antecedent of it? See, is it the church or is it the rock? Now, it can be both with English grammar. Normally, it's going to be the last noun used. I submit unto you, it can be nothing but the rock. Now, let's analyze that. Let's use a little bit of inductive reasoning, some scientific analysis, and just see what the scriptures allow. Okay, and I'm not adding to scripture. 
was Peter, uh, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the it? Well, what are gates? It's not the powers of hell. It's not the fires of hell. It's not the demons of hell. It's the gates of hell. Gates set up on a perimeter. Gates are designed for one of two, re two reasons, to keep something out or to keep something in. Let's analyze Peter. If I ask you, was Peter ever in hell trying to get out? No, he was not. Was he ever trying to get in hell? He was not. Was the church ever in hell trying to get out? No. Was the church, is the church ever going to try to get in hell? No. Was the rock ever in hell? That's a definite yes. He's the one that has the keys of death and hell. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. He's the one that the gates of hell will not, he's the one with the keys. See, Peter's got some keys, but they're not to hell and they're not to heaven. Somebody read something in there that's not there. They're not to heaven. They're to the kingdom of heaven. And that is not the same. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the earth. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It, he never, never saw the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven's not here now upon this earth. This is still Satan's world. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a very quick synopsis of that, but friend, you, there's no way that Peter can be that rock. I mean, the, the rock, Ephesians chapter 4, I know you know this, but I mean, Ephesians chapter 10, verse 4, the rock's Jesus Christ. Moses said it, the rock is Jesus Christ in Deuteronomy 32. Peter himself said that the rock is uh, the chief cornerstone, mm -hmm. First Peter chapter 5 through 8. And Paul said it, that Jesus is the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. And I say that, that's a new building. That's a new, that's a new foundation, a new building, a new church. That's a new garment. You don't put new, old, you don't patch an old garment with new. That's something completely, completely separate from the house of Israel. And the foundation of using the same scientific analysis, looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the foundation of their prophet, the preposition is what's going to mess you up. It's the, the apostles are not the foundation. You mentioned Revelation. Notice their gates. They're not foundation. Gates are resting upon the foundation. I, I admit, uh, submit, sure, I acknowledge that is that they are pillars upon that foundation. But the foundation of the prophets, uh, of the apostles, there were no apostles before Jesus Christ. You will not, you will find nowhere in your Bible that there was an apostle before Jesus Christ. What about prophets? Absolutely, you can find prophets after Jesus Christ. Apostles, these apostles and these prophets are not uh, Jeremiah and Hosea and all that stuff. No, these are apostles since then. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says he gave, after he ascended, he gave apostles and prophets. First Corinthians, I think it's chapter, uh, uh, yeah, chapter 12 mentions prophets so we know there's apostles in the new testament but there's also apostles you would have to insert and add to the text if you want to take an an apostle from the old testament which there are none mentioned okay and i know mm -hmm. we use synonyms and things like that but an apostle is someone who is called by jesus christ mm -hmm. and that's not there you would okay. have to add so yeah so several things with that first off the new wine the new cloth um you're using an analogy there that Jesus didn't use it for um, not gonna I'm not gonna go into that but uh, let me say this when it comes to um, the foundation 
Okay, it's not a problem for Jesus to say, upon this rock I'll build my church. It, he, Peter is a rock that the church is built on, just like Ephesians chapter 2 says. Obviously, that does not mean he's the first pope. That does not mean he's the most important figure. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. But let's just say for a minute that, okay, it is Jesus. Either way, you know, and, and let's just say, too, that he's talking about a new building. Okay, here here's the thing about it that we're forgetting and leaving out of the equation, and that is that all these people from that were of faith from the Old Testament are going to be resurrected at the coming of Christ, and we are all going to be a part of the same body. And so, if you want to say, "Well, it started with Jesus," well, the it is true that the reason there's a resurrection is because of the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So everything that made it possible for those in the past and those in the future to rise again is based on what was done during that time in history in Jesus' life. So the thing is, you know, I I do think he's talking about the Old Testament prophets because of the fact, too, that when they started preaching the gospel, when Paul started preaching the gospel, when Peter and James are preaching the gospel, they are constantly got. They used the scriptures to prove these things. They went to the Old Testament and showed how Jesus was the fulfillment of these things. So, in, so in reality, if you want to say, well, yeah, the building started to be built during the life and ministry of Jesus, I guess there's no problem with that because yes. It was that physical work that he did on earth during that time that uh, made all things possible. But even with that, you still cannot exclude all those in the past who are of faith and separate them from that building. Because understand, too, that the promises that God gave to Abraham in in Hebrews chapter 11, it makes it very clear that um, they never received the promise but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. And the truth is, Abraham is going to receive the promises God gave. Israel is going to receive the promises God made. Now, not a a physical lineage of people out there today claiming to be Jews. No, Israel, the people who are of faith, who came into the promised land. You know, men like David and Solomon and Isaac and Jacob, you know, they're the ones that are going to receive that and they are all going to be able to be a part of that because of what Jesus Christ did. So, um, you know, so we can, you know, we can have discussions about how to interpret all that stuff, but either way, if Jesus is the rock, the building started in the first century, doesn't change the fact that it's all going to be one body that includes because you know the old, I believe that the Old Testament saints, and I think this is super easy to prove, um, are going to rise with us at the coming of Christ. I don't believe in a separate resurrection of uh, Old and New Testament saints. So I guess you know when it when it comes down to all this, you know while we can have some disagreement, I don't think one of us proven we're right really changes the outcome. Or the future of Israel, which is ultimately where we're going. What is Israel's future? Right. Uh, 
we we both would acknowledge all through the scriptures. I tell you, who was looking forward to the cross and to Jesus Christ? Who was who was who was looking forward in the Old Testament? It was God. There's no doubt about it that God anticipated the cross, mm-hmm. but no Old Testament saint did. Not even the apostles did, of course. And I think you would have to concede that. Well, they they did, but they didn't know it. So, for example, if Adam and Eve were believed in a seed of a woman that was going to bruise the head of Satan, the, that we know that was done at the cross. So they it was not revealed that it was a man by the name of Jesus Christ, that, and he was going to do it in his death on the cross, but that is, in fact, what that seed of a woman did. So they only had to, they only had to be, you know, in the dispensational world, they've turned salvation into like a, a mixture of elements that you've got to mix together to conjure up salvation. No, it's, it's as simple as, you know, as faith. And they only had to have faith in what had been revealed at that time. When God told Abraham, God will provide himself a lamb. If Abraham believed that, if, and he and he did believe in that, then you know what? He believes in Christ because God did provide himself a lamb. Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain. Again, he didn't know it was going to be on a cross. He didn't know the details that we know today. That dispensation had not been received yet. But yet for us to look back at the seed of a woman and look at that prophecy and to try to separate it from the cross— Nobody would do that to look at what God promised Abraham about providing himself a lamb and to try to separate that from Jesus. No one would do that. I got so, a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you would agree with me. Abraham wasn't saved by believing that God would send, provide himself a lamb. He was, no. he got eternal life in Genesis 15. Six right. by, yeah. When he said he would yeah. multiply a seed. Yeah. And I believe, I do believe that it's always been by faith and it, but the mm-hmm. object of that faith. It's always it's salvation in the Old Testament. This is where I would uh, go against the grain of a lot of the uh, Ruckmanite friends that I have is that um, I just believe that my position is stronger than theirs. OK, but I'm still I, I'm not uh, enmity with them if they can handle it. But um, it's always it's as simple as this. Salvation in the Old Testament is believing in the revealed promises of God that he gives you. You believe God, he will account it to you for righteousness. Mm-hmm. Salvation for us today is the same thing. It's just the object is a resurrected Savior. Now, i got a question for you, though. You mm-hmm. mentioned something that was interesting. Uh, the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 being fulfilled at Calvary. Why do you say that? The Bible clearly teaches that that hasn't happened yet. That's second advent. Did you know that Jesus, uh, Paul says, uh, well, Tertius is writing Romans. You know what he says in Romans chapter 16, mm-hmm. verse 20? Mm-hmm. Look at Romans 16, 20 with me. Um, well, I, but I, I, I'm mainly saying that's talking about Jesus Christ. So well, they had... yeah, but it's not, it's not Calvary, though. So, mm-hmm. See, the only person that was bruised at Calvary was Jesus. He mm-hmm. was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Satan was not bruised. His head didn't get touched at Calvary in spite mm-hmm. of Mel Gibson's Catholic film that he mm-hmm. made a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, well, would so you agree to that when God told Abraham he was going to multiply his seed? Mm-hmm. Now, how how is that done? Well, through Jesus Christ. So Abraham was believing in Jesus Christ. 
You know, well, he had, he had he had faith in, but like I said, yeah, that, that uh, and again, so he believed the promise of God. The promises mm-hmm. are all fulfilled through Jesus Christ. I agree. That's no problem. I don't right. have a problem at all with that. But yeah, uh, I think the biggest. Oh, go ahead. I don't want to talk over. Yeah, but no. But I'm just saying. So as far as you know, everything had to be had to be fulfilled, and some things still have to be fulfilled. Even yeah. I mean, Jesus. He even made a big deal uh, when he said, I thirst. He did that so it would be fulfilled because it was prophesied that uh, they were going to offer him vinegar. And, 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 he, and he took that vinegar. He had to do everything that was prophesied, and there are still some things to do. And so I'm just saying anyone who believed in whatever was prophesied at that time, since Jesus was or is going to be the fulfillment of all those things, that they did, in fact, uh, you know, put their faith and trust in Christ. But again, just what had been revealed about him. We receive new dispensations throughout the Bible. And one of these days, we're going to receive another dispensation. For example, too, uh, I'm not going to go real deep into this, but um, we see examples in the book of Acts where years after the cross, they're going and finding other believers who I believe were clearly saved, but they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. They would go and like Aquila and Priscilla, they preached to Apollos the way of Christ um, more, more perfectly. perfectly. They gave him the rest of the story. And then we see it later when they would, you know, it was after they would hear about Jesus Christ, they would lay hands on them and receive the Holy Ghost. And this is what I believe about that. I believe everyone who was saved before the cross maintained their salvation, you know, after the cross. But I don't believe everyone in the world automatically got the Holy Ghost on Pentecost. I believe Christ had to be revealed to them. And I believe everyone who is truly saved, when Christ was revealed to them, they would accept him and receive the Holy Ghost. And so just like that, I believe one of these days, we are going to receive another dispensation of Jesus Christ. I believe that dispensation is going to be at his coming when we see him. And when we see him, the Bible says we're going to be like him. So when we receive the next dispensation, we are going to get a glorified body. A hundred percent of people who are saved, when they see Christ, will accept that dispensation. Just like a hundred percent of people who were saved before the cross accepted the dispensation that they received then. They just didn't all get it at the same time. And so that's how, that's what a dispensation is to me. And so... You know, we're not, I don't believe we're going to get any new dispensation until the actual coming of Christ. So nothing's really changed. But at the same time, in the millennium, when uh, there's new people being born, and I believe people will be getting saved in the millennium, did you know? I, I think it's possible that how we would verbalize the gospel might be a little bit different. But at the but I guarantee you a couple things. One, however people get saved, it will be by faith. It will not be because of works. And they will be able to be saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. I, th- I think we would all agree with that to a certain extent. And so, you know, that's kind of how I, I define dispensationalism and, and, and why I think it's consistent and it's not wrong to say these Old Testament saints, you know, believed in Christ, um, but I'm not, you know, saying that they had all the information that we do. 
I'm just going to be, that's probably the biggest difference between me and you as Bible students is sort of like what I just showed you from Ephesians chapter two and um, the, the Matthew chapter 16. And, and you can do it on your own time. Try to make that anything else but what I've just advocated that it is. And I don't think you would be able to. Um, but and when we or observing this is dispens, dispensationalism, I guess you would say, and I we can call it anything else. We can just call it divine wisdom. Honestly, mm -hmm. you can. It's just observing. Hey, wait a minute. So many people. Why would somebody think that Calvary is the fulfillment of of Genesis three fifteen? No, no, no. That's way. That's a that's a period. There's a two thousand year period of time between that. Now that's future. He's mm -hmm. going to crush that head. You see, uh, but that's that's future. And recognizing that has, is very. Once that stuff is salient to you. The Holy Spirit illuminates us by way of typology and all kind of things is all you're going to see is that God is going to restore the nation of Israel. And that is so apparent through the scripture that you can't miss it. Now, the biggest thing that I, I, I don't know how much time we have left, mm -hmm. but one thing I wanted to touch on, and it's because uh, I'm really trying to find where you know, we could go back and forth about so much and just throw smoke in the air, you know, and uh, let's make our punches count. OK, mm -hmm. um, I that's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sorry. Mm -hmm. My wife usually gets home about this time. He's got a built in sensor and he's excited and mm -hmm. she's not here yet, though. He misread that. Maybe the UPS truck. Um, sorry about that. That's OK. Um, the. Help me out with this. This is what I see that you're seeing, okay? And don't let me misrepresent you. I'm just going to state what I, I believe that you are missing is you would take us to, um, where am I trying to think, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3, where the, the seed is not the seed of many, but the seed of one. You see, and you would say, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, and we are that is me and you. Wouldn't you agree? Mm -hmm. And that is that is that is the spiritual entity that makes up the body of Christ. And when I've had to think about that, and I said, okay, what is going on here? I'm seeing that, and it caused me to study, and it really didn't take a lot of time. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Where is Tommy McMurtry? What is he missing? And it's this. He is not referring when he speaks of that in Galatians. I guess can I let's just look at Galatians. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, is it three? Am I quoting that right? Or yeah, two? Galatians three. Galatians three um, mentions the the seed, mm -hmm. and it, there's no doubt it's it's Jesus Christ. Um, and the Bible says in verse number chapter three, verse eight, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Now, when you see gospel, I think you're seeing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I see gospel, I'm going with only what the scriptures will allow me to see, and it is the glad tidings that were given to Abraham, okay? The good news. Mm -hmm. The good news of what? There's going to be there's a lot of good news. You could have good news that you got a promotion or good news that you got married. Uh, that Those are both gospels. Those are both glad tidings, but they mm -hmm are geared toward different things. But we see this, 
and that in thee all nations shall be blessed. Now, I believe that you would attribute that right there to the same promise that we read about in verse 16 uh, of us being of the seed of Isaac and things like that, seems that with uh, Romans 9, and that you believe that that is the fulfillment of uh, his mandate, uh, his promise in Genesis 12. Mm -hmm. Would you say that? Yeah. Okay. Do you realize something that you're missing? Okay, this is where that that chain gets weak. Okay, he's not quoting uh, Genesis chapter twelve and verse three here. Mm-hmm. He's quoting Genesis eighteen and verse eighteen. Okay. In Genesis twelve verse three, he said, "Abraham in the uh, uh, all all families will be blessed." Mm-hmm. Okay. In Genesis eighteen eighteen, after the promise of Isaac, he's saying, "All nations will be blessed." Now you can fit families into nations, but you can't fit nations into families. The reason that's important, the gen- the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is physical seed of Abraham. The promise of Genesis 18, 18 is what we are referring to here. He just gave you the cross reference. Now, you would have to add to the scriptures to make that revelation i mean genesis 12 verse 3 it's genesis 8 when he said that to he said it to sarah genesis 18 18 and the all nations be blessed that extent that's where you and me get in see that's where us gentile dogs now can eat the crumbs from under the master's table we get we get the goods based upon that promise but the promise of genesis chapter 12 verse 3 has not gone away do you know why we know that because you know where god's inheritance is it's not in Isaac. Our inheritance, Jesus Christ, is in Isaac. God's inheritance is in the guy that came after Isaac, and his name is Jacob. He's clear to you. Don't have Israel until after Isaac had a son. There is no Israel before Isaac. Now, Jacob is God's inheritance. Deuteronomy 34 and a dozen other places will show clearly that God has his own inheritance. I know sometimes people are prone to scoff at the idea of the bride of Christ and a bride of God, but you know what? The Bible clearly shows that the book of Ruth, that kinsman, that near kinsman, uh, Boaz could not redeem it without first going to the kinsman that's nearer. And he said, I can't do it because I'll have to take the wife and I'll mar my own inheritance. And his inheritance is in Jacob, which is physical. They're coming. They're they're not going anywhere. But this is spiritual. How do you know that? Look at Genesis. I mean, look at uh, Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 16. Let's look at it again. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promise or promises. Is it singular or plural? Plural. Plural. Jesus Christ claims both promises. He claims the promises of the seed of of Isaac. He claims the spiritual and the physical promises of Abraham, not only to Isaac, his chosen seed, but to a physical, literal, visible king of the Jews reigning in the millennium. Now, that may be a lot to process, but that's the key. The interpretive key right there is a misappropriation of this text to an Old Testament passage that it doesn't cite. So you don't believe that the seed in Genesis 12, 3 is talking about Jesus. The seed in Genesis 12, 3 would include, it would uh, include Jesus, Jesus because of the messianic, physical messianic line. Okay. You see, we'll see but the spiritual seed. Our mm-hmm. 
In other words, I, we're we're children of promise, mm-hmm. Isaac. Okay, but Israel and Jacob are synonymous terms. I know you know that. Okay, mm-hmm. when you go to Romans chapter nine, you know what you'll see. He he says he says in Romans chapter nine, uh, Paul says, you know, in so many words, uh, I misquoted. He says, I'm, he's burdened for Israel. Let mm-hmm. me let me read that real quick. Um, Romans chapter nine and uh, my heart's desire for Israel. I think that's how it starts. Perhaps, uh, maybe not. Now I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy ghost. that I break heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, watch it, who are Israelites. That's not saved people, okay? That's the house. That's mm-hmm. the house of, uh, of of Israel, of Jacob, to whom pertaineth the adoption. Notice he doesn't say to whom used to pertain all of these things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says to whom pertains the adoption, the covenants, the law, and the promise says there's more than one promise there. Mm-hmm. We're just one promise. You and me, what we got, the spiritual seed of the church is one promise. But there's still promises that are future, and that's why there's more in the Bible about the restoration of Israel than just about any other thing second to the uh, reign of Jesus Christ uh, on the throne of David. See, that's a promise, the throne of David, the uh, the new covenant, things like that, which I believe that we're a part of that now, but that is an expansion. will be more added to that in the future. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's the biggest big thing, man. Yeah, well— you're missing you're missing you're missing judah i'm sorry you're missing jacob you Mm -hmm. see you see isaac and you stop there but jacob still has pending a pending future i see i don't stop with jacob so all right several things here i'm going to try to no uh, i said you stop with isaac not jacob or Uh, yeah no so here's the thing abraham had two sons one of a bond woman one of a free woman one of the flesh ishmael that's the jews one of uh, the, a promise. That's Isaac. That's the Christians. You have Isaac. He has two sons, Esau of the flesh. You have uh, Jacob of promise. You know, Esau represents the Jews. Uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Uh, that's that's from Malachi. Paul quoted it in chapter 9. And then in uh-huh. chapter 9. No, 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 no. Esau represents Edom. <laughs> no. So, well, let's go to Reve- let's go to Romans chapter 9. All right. The Calvinists have been taking the dispensationalists to the woodshed for years on this. So after Paul says, to whom pertaineth the adoptions and all that, saying whose fathers of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, blessed forever, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel that are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall I see be called. He's saying there that it's the spiritual, it's those who are a promise that are counted for the seed. Okay, these are that is they which are the children of the flesh. He's been talking about Israel. These are not the children of God. Okay, Esau, Ishmael represent the flesh. For this is the word of the promise. This time will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but Rebekah, also which had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born neither having done any good or any evil at the purpose of God, according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. And it was always the physical that came before the spiritual. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. 
God chose the spiritual over the physical. Israel, who Paul's been talking about as the context of this passage, is like Ishmael. They are like Esau. They are only of the flesh, and God chose those who are of the spirit. And so those who are of the flesh, Paul called them the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. God chose those who are of the flesh for destruction. And so that's why Israel is associated with with Ishmael in Romans chapter 9 and in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul put the Jews with Hagar because they were only of the flesh. So Romans 9 is showing that God loves God and God chose the spiritual over the physical. And you know what? That didn't even stop with Jacob. Let's go on to the next generation because you've got now Jacob. We know he had 12 sons, but we know he loved that younger one. He loved Joseph. Joseph was kind of the chosen one, you could say, above his brethren, and they hated him, and they kill, and, and they tried to kill him, just like the Jews hated Jesus, the chosen one, the chosen son. And then Joseph, it doesn't stop with Joseph. Go on, when he has Ephraim and Manasseh, what does he do? Jacob, when he blesses him, he crosses hands, and he chooses the younger Ephraim, who is a representation of the Gentiles. I've preached whole sermons on that. And Ephraim is who, like I said, he's who we're associated with. Jacob prophesied that Ephraim would be a greater people than Manasseh. You never see that fulfilled anywhere in the Bible. Manasseh was always the large amount of people. Ephraim was a small tribe. But Ephraim eventually did outdo Manasseh because of the fact that they were a representation of the Gentiles, and that is where a majority of the body of Christ is going to come from, not from the 12 tribes of Israel, but from the multitude of the Gentiles that was prophesied that would come, that is referred to in Romans chapter 11. And and I know there's there's a lot to unload there, but basically what we see through the Bible, you always see the physical and then the spiritual. You have Cain who came first and then Abel. You have Adam who came first, who was fleshly. And then you have the last Adam, who was of the spirit, Jesus Christ. God always chose the younger brother. You have the prodigal son, sorry, the prodigal son. You have the elder brother that represents Israel. You've got the younger brother that represents those outcasts of Israel. And that's just a constant theme that we see throughout the Bible. And so the thing is, the fulfillment, and this is where, the you know, the uh, disagreement is again how I all the promises are going to be fulfilled, but they and they were fulfilled through Israel because again Jesus Christ descended from that line. Jesus Christ was of Israel, and in Acts three twenty four, Peter when he's preaching to Jews, by the way, he says, "Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. These are the days they prophesied about." Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God gave with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So Jesus was the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the one who received the inheritance. He has inherited all things. 
we are joint heirs with Christ. And so the thing is, any promise that God made to Israel will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Now, no unfor- yeah, but no you are still looking for a fulfillment amongst a physical people over in the Middle East today. That's that's Ishmael. That's Esau. He's going to do it with those who are of promise. Now, he will not exclude those who are of the flesh. If they will abide not still in unbelief, he'll graft them in again. I mean, after all, the promises were made for them. It pertained to them. And if they will not abide in unbelief, they will be grafted back in again. But th- no. But here's the thing. The Bible is very clear. Christ inher- is the inheritor of all things. We are joint heirs with Christ. So what inheritance does a physical Jew have coming that I don't? There kingdom are none. The kingdom of heaven. So kingdom of Jesus heaven, did is- not inherit the kingdom of heaven? which is the earth. Not yet. The kingdom of heavens won't, won't be here till the king gets here. And Jesus Christ is not reigning as our king now. Now, when you say that, that the future of Israel, physical Israel, mm-hmm. will be, Israel's going to be wiped out then. Israel has got hell on earth. There's going to be a Israel's remnant already been spared. wiped out. Well, there's going to be a remnant spared. And here's what's going to happen. They will look up Zechariah. They will look up on him whom they have pierced and mourn from him for him. You mentioned Ephraim. I'm just, we're talking about the reality of Scripture, man. Mm-hmm. Once it becomes salient, Ephraim and Israel are synonymous terms in the book of Hosea. And we're prophesied about in the book of Hosea, obviously. I will call them a people. Uh, Romans chapter 11 mentions that, which were not mm-hmm. my people. I'll provoke you to jealousy with an- another nation. That's, again, what was being grafted in in Romans 11. I bet it wasn't the church. I bet you'd have to force something up on that. I bet it's something besides the church. I bet it's an olive tree. Okay. But again, I'm in Hosea right now. I'll show you a three, a 2000 year expanse of time showing you. And this is, I can show you a dozen. Is it the two days prophecy? Absolutely. It is. Mm -hmm. And it is Ephraim. I will be to Ephraim as a lion now. And uh, I'm sorry if you can't see it, brother, because it says, for I, verse 14, for I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. You know what's been happening for the last two days? The last 2,000 years is a day unto the Lord is as a thousand years. I embrace that as an interpretive method of understanding prophecy. And uh, the history reveals when they said at the cross, we have no king but Caesar. His blood be upon our children. God took them up on that. Hmm. And you know what they've been? They've been nothing but a fugitive and a vagabond for for 2,000 years with no place to call their own homeland, no place to rest their head, ostracized, persecuted, hated by the world. And Satan uh, has been the orchestrator of that hatred to them. Now, uh, but it's going to, look, here's them reasoning. The Bible says that I will go and return to my place, verse 15, until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. They haven't done it yet, have they? In their affliction, they will seek me early. There's your tribulation. There's your great time of Jacob's trouble. It's not mm-hmm. the church's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. In verse 6, come. This is their, this is the attitude of the, now this is the leadership of Israel. He said in Matthew 23, you'll not see me come uh, uh, till you hear, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. 
Well, they already said that in Matthew chapter 11, that that wasn't the leadership of Israel. They mm -hmm. had a chance at, at stoning a Stephen. And that's why Jesus Christ was standing up, thinking, ah, oh, they, they're under conviction, but they stopped their ears and they killed the prophet. Mm -hmm. Here it is again, come and let us return. They're going to say that. This is just as sure as tomorrow brings another day. This is Israel. Come and let us return, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us. After two days, that's your church age right there. That's your 2,000 years of church history, the body of Christ. Will he revive us in the third day? He will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Now, to, that's that's an archetype and a, a far-reaching. See, dispensational thought also would recognize the near-reaching fulfillment of this. Often mm -hmm. there's a pending army, and it's a literal two days, but the far-reaching application it allows us to see that as well because that's the same thing you'll see it at all of that discourse near-reaching roman mm -hmm. titus and all that stuff far-reaching antichrist armies from the north okay mm -hmm. that is an expansion of ideas that, that gives such a reciprocal broadening of understanding by way of applying just good wisdom or spiritual uh insight to that but and and using analytical method of, of interpreting scripture not conjecture not post hoc rationalization of something we are forcing upon the text so with that being said a lot there you know i know you mentioned in romans chapter 9 i i i, I was trying to follow but mm -hmm. I see it looks like you're using a spiritual application and you're spiritualizing that. And it's OK to do sometimes mm -hmm. as long as you acknowledge that it's not a doctrinal application that you're making. That's not a theological dissertation on the on the state of Israel, because mm -hmm. there's too much in the Bible that is showing that um, uh, Israel will be restored. There will be a remnant. He mm -hmm. will keep his promise. This has to do with the integrity of God. He made that promise to Abraham, and it's their beloved for the Father's sake. That's not the Father in heaven. That's the Father's right. that the promise was given to. So once you see that and you understand, we're considering the weakness of the chain here. I'm seeing a quantum leap between measuring the physical that is given to Jacob and the spiritual from Isaac that we do apply. You're right about everything you say about Isaac, except that that is the end of all things, not at all. And you're uh, it, you're missing the uh, the. There's not one promise. There's many promises. We are just the fulfillment of one promise. Read Galatians three again carefully, and you'll see that. Mm -hmm. So here's what's happening um, with your Hosea example too dispensationalists what they typically do um when it comes to old testament prophecy is they ignore and you have they completely ignore the original fulfillment of those things so what you're what when you're the book of hosea that was mm -hmm. a prophecy that was given about the northern kingdom and about their you know the prophecies about the restoration of israel were fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity. Mm -hmm. Now, contained within those prophecies are, in fact, messianic prophecies and millennium prophecies, okay. and and those are very easy to spot and easy to find. What happens though? Dispensationalists they will go and they will show the messianic prophecy, and then because there's a messianic passage in there or a millennium passage in there. Now they make the entire chapter about that. 
that you cannot do that with Old Testament prophecy. For example, if you go to uh, first coming prophecies, like for unto us a child, or uh, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel and all that. Keep reading that prophecy. That was a prophecy about that day, that before uh, both their kings, uh, they were, they were going to lose both their kingdoms. It was, it was towards these other kingdoms. And it was fulfilled in that generation. But of course, Jesus fulfilled that virgin conceiving thing in a literal sense. But the rest of that passage, no one applies it to the first coming. Everyone applies it back in that day, uh, in Isaiah's day. And so Hosea, it is, it's a, and Zechariah, for example, those are about, uh, especially Zechariah, about the temple being rebuilt. And there are messianic prophecies in there. Now, What's the day of the Lord in Zechariah? Well, here, here's so here's the thing about Zechariah that every uh, there's a key verse in there that gets overlooked and ignored. The prophecies in Zechariah understand they will be fulfilled, but how they will be fulfilled, and that's where the argument needs to be. It's going to be a little different, but it's going to be better because those prophecies had. Um, there were some contingencies there. It says in Zechariah 6, 15, and they that are far shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass. If ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God. I'm now, here's the, here chapter six. Yes. Zechariah six fifteen. So the thing is, if you look at history after they rebuilt the temple, they did not diligently follow the Lord. They did not obey God. Um, if you look at Malachi, uh, many of the prophecies in Malachi, we see some that were fulfilled. We see some that weren't. You know why? Because... I know why. Yeah, I know why. Well, because they weren't ready for him. When the day of his visitation came on Palm Sunday, they yeah. weren't ready. Jesus rejected them. They had not done what he had told them to do. And so because of that... He took the kingdom from them. So now, so then you're saying, well, God's breaking his promises. No, he's actually keeping his promises. Those things had contingencies, but now the way God is going to have them fulfilled is through Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews talks about these things as better. I don't believe that in a coming uh, millennial temple, like we, uh, like, like people talk about from Ezekiel 40 through 48. You read those passages, those were contingent. Israel didn't do it. Jesus came and fulfilled them in a better way, and he offered a better sacrifice and did away with that. So they don't need, so the promises will be fulfilled, but in a better way through Jesus Christ. And so here's the thing, and this is something too that I can't get dispensationalists to talk about, but when it comes to the future of Israel, which is what it all comes down to, we all agree God's going to keep all his promises. But understand, God is not obligated to take a bad interpretation of a promise and that we've come up with and fulfill it in that way. We've got to make sure we fully understand what God is teaching and how he's going to do these things. And we do see that uh, in the Bible, so like when it comes to Israel's future in Matthew um, I'm just going to read a few real quick. And it said in Luke 19, Jesus, when he's given a parable that they understood was about them, 
Jesus said, but those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. And he, and when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass, when he is nigh unto Bethphage and Bethany, and the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two, uh, um, he sent two of his disciples, and I lost the other part of that verse. But basically, you know that prophecy, and the Pharisees understood he spoke of them. Those my enemies, talking about the Jews that would not that I should reign over them, bring them and slay them before me. Okay, that doesn't sound like a restoration. Matthew 21, 18. Now in the morning, this is after he'd gone into Jerusalem on the day of his visitation when Israel did not pass the test. He hungered, and when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. What was he looking for in his day of visitation? You can find out in the book of Isaiah when you go back and look at all the verses he quoted, he was looking for fruit. They didn't have any. They were keeping people out of the kingdom. There were no Gentiles there. We already talked about Romans 9 where he called them the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. When is that going to take place? First, wait, hang on. Let me get one more in. 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered the like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Paul okay. said they're under God's wrath to the uttermost. That means the end, forever. Well, you understand that to be under God's wrath does not mean it's eternal damnation. If that's the case, Nehemiah was in trouble and Ezra was in trouble. It does they if it's all... to the uttermost. Mm, well, okay. We're, just like uh, we're saved to the uttermost, they are yeah. under God's wrath to the uttermost. Well, the thing is, when you just like, for example, and again, there, this is so multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, there's so much going on here, I'm trying to process. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, but. One thing for anyone, any third party that's trying to reason things out, I would just like Romans 9, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, no doubt. But in what under what covenant is that? Is that is that the Abrahamic covenant? No, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. That's under the Mosaic covenant. How do you know the cross reference again is going to be Jeremiah 18? guarantee you that that's exactly what that tethers to and it's 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 violation look what he wrote in the indictment of the curses in deuteronomy chapter 28 that's all in violation of the mosaic covenant and he will clean your clock that's exactly exactly what that is now with that but man it seems like again i'm i'm i'll 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 charge you with with minimizing things that are so apparent, just like for this, that the Bible is laid out in a, in a premillennial order. And the premillennial order has to do with that. It's going to end up being with that Jew living happily ever after. I guarantee you. You'll see that. Look at Ezra and Nehemiah and how that syncs up with history, with prophecy. And what is history to us is that you've got a king, a Gentile world power in uh, Xerxes. Well, it's, in Nehemiah's day, it was Cyrus. No, in Nehemiah's day, it was Xerxes. In Ezra's day, it was Cyrus. And you've got a mandate that the uh, Jewish Bible stops. Uh, the order of a Hebrew Bible, an Old Testament Orthodox Jew, will end with uh, 2 
Chronicles 36 as a mandate to go back to Jew, uh, back to Jerusalem. You see, mm-hmm. and but if he got saved, he'd come to Malachi saying, "Wait on the coming of the Lord." But you got Ezra and Nehemiah, man. You got uh, that is that syncs up with the Balfour Declaration of 1917. You've got a you've got a, a Gentile world power that gives you the authority to establish your own land again and to go back. You see how fractal Bible and patternistic the Bible is. Now you may not want to see that, but it's still there. And then you've got the fulfillment under Nehemiah building the wall that happened later is the reinforcement of them in their land in 1948. Show that's a that's an established fact that uh, Britain withdrew occupation from that land, and they are running their own people in their own land again, just like God promised that they would. Now they haven't been spiritually restored yet. That will be later after the tribulation. You've got after that Ezra Nehemiah. You got Esther. The same pattern, you've got Bastai, she is a Gentile bride. You've got Arhasuerus being the sovereign of the world. There's no more of a powerful man in, in the uh, universe than, than uh, Arhasuerus or Artaxerxes. That's still Xerxes mm-hmm. in history. He's called Xerxes, the Persian Empire, uh, running from Ethiopia all the way to India. And uh, this guy over, what, 127 provinces. Well, he called her to come out. That's the apostasy of the church. That's going to sink right there with Revelation chapter uh, 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And guess what? That bride ain't opening the door. She didn't come out to him. You, She vanishes. There's your rapture. She's gone. You see, she's the best eye. The, the antitype is going to be revealed in, in the book of Revelation and also in the book of in the Pauline epistles. But then you, you, I mean, you've got every player and component of history. You've got uh, that uh, Jew, Mordecai, you've got Esther. Now he's going to turn his attention to that Jew again. That Jew is now salient. And guess what? Who's trying to wipe them out? Haman. That's the Antichrist. What does Haman do? He's going to meet his doom, just like Revelation 20 will show that Satan will meet his doom. He'll be, he'll, uh, that's where the head wound comes. Haman died from head wound, he died from his own schemes. So they, and then you've got the second advent, you've got, you see all of the, the feast of Purim and all of that. And the, the decree was overturned, how God is the master chess player and Xerxes set that thing up. And there's no way that uh, he can reverse his decree, but he makes it, works it out where it uh, goes in favor of the Jew because God knows what's going to take place and has an answer for whatever takes place, even if what took place didn't take place. That's how that's how God is. I'd be accused of being an open theist by our Calvinistic uh, mm-hmm. brethren. But uh, and then what about the book of Job? You've got 42 chapters, 42 months in great tribulation, three and a half years. You've got a picture of a Jew and the tribulation and what and I could I could embellish that with so much detail. But one thing is for certain at the end of that thing. Job finally repents of his self-righteousness that he sees God. And he said, now I've heard about you, but now that I see you, I repent in dust and ashes. And Job, notice he uses the word captivity. He led captivity captive. The captive of Jesus Christ sat down in that temple, in that uh, synagogue, and quoted uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 61, deliverance to the captive. The Bible says in Job 42, and God restored the captivity of Job. Job got everything back he lost, a double portion of everything he lost, and he lived happily ever after. Mm. Hey, after that, what do you have? 
you got the book of Psalms. What is Psalms? Second Advent. That's all that Psalms is about, is far-reaching, near and far-reaching prophecies of Selah Petra and that Jew and her cry and the, the restoration. Uh, that is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why the first thing Jesus says when he shows up in Matthew, now he's talking, he's not talking about heaven, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. How long was it at hand? This is where dispensational thought is paramount. It was at hand until it wasn't at hand anymore. And that's why they're saying, well, you restore the kingdom to Israel again. Acts chapter one It's not for you to know the times and season. I'll be back. OK, <laughs> that's that's how that's a premillennial layout right there in your Bible. And it's everywhere. I could show you the same thing in John chapter four. We see him going to Jairus's house in Luke 12. That's a that's a Jew. And he gets cut off because a Gentile woman reaches out, touch him, had an issue of blood. He deals with her. That's your church age right there. See, what I just quoted to you from uh, Hosea chapter 5, that's as salient as anything else you'll ever see. It's more, more on that topic than the virgin birth and the blood atonement put together. And it's about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the restoration of that Jew. It is seen in John chapter 4, I must needs go through Samaria. Again, next thing you know, he's dealing with Galileans again, Jews. Okay, you're going to see, it just doesn't stop. I could go on and on. But uh, mm -hmm. Revelation, I know you would somehow engineer that Revelation and not mean what it is, but you don't see the church from Revelation 4 to 19. You see four accounts, not chronological, of that tribulation. You don't see and Jews either. Thing. Huh? You don't see, the only time you see Jews mentioned, they're called the synagogue of Satan. Uh oh, don't call yourself a Jew then. Those who say <laughs> they are Jews. I'm messing with you. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, so the thing is, going you, on for sure. yeah, you're you're you guys are dependent on symbolism, and you're ignoring plain text. Okay, so for example, mm -hmm. one thing you said early on that I agree with: in the millennium, the Jews will be living there happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing: it's going to be the resurrected ones, Jesus Himself. Okay, and you guys have to ignore plain text, clear text. Jesus Christ Himself said that they will come from the north and south, east and west, and they will sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom will be thrust out. Mm -hmm. So, And he's saying that to the Jews because of their lack of faith and their rejection of him. So in the millennium, what do we see? The Jews sitting there happily ever after, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Old Testament ones. But then he's saying, but that children of the kingdom, the ones that these, peop the, these people that it was promised to, they're going to get thrust out while all these other people from all over the world are coming and being a part of it too. So again, based on your theology with the rest, this restoration of physical Jews, how does that happen? Who are these people that are getting thrust out? Who are these enemies that would not that he should reign over, that he's bringing it to slay before him? Who are these vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? Who are these Jews who are under God's wrath to the end? It's there's going to be rebellion. The, the Bible makes it very clear. I could show you a dozen references right now. The Bible, there's going to be there's going to be rebellion even in the millennial kingdom. Mm -hmm. it, it'll be suppressed until the Antichrist. Don't you see the battle at the end of that thing? Mm -hmm. You understand? Yeah. There, there, that's going to be throughout until see the new covenant, lasting covenant. Now there's a there's a millennial reign. You understand? And, but after that, that just goes into eternity future, you see, which is of the end. Look, Isaiah chapter nine, 
you do believe that, don't you? Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Buddy, that's an expansion of something that will never stop. I hope he's got a lot of room out there. Uh, increase does not necessarily mean getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It the increase inc- of his government? But the increase of his government okay. and peace. What is it that destroys kingdoms? Famines, wars. Okay. So right. increase is what the ground brings forth and we consume. Yeah. So we're never going to run out of what we need to sustain us. That doesn't mean the kingdom's going to get bigger and bigger. That's where the Ruckmanites get we're inhabiting other planets. Well, maybe, you know what? I don't, right now, we don't have to even venture into that. Yeah, because that's, you yeah. Understand it's not, it's, we'll see, won't we? But yeah, but I, <laughs> yeah, so I guess, you know, what it comes down to, you know, where the real disagreement is, again, is I do, I believe that the physical seed are meant for destruction. I believe when Christ returns, that any Jews that are left who have not uh, been saved are going to be destroyed. I believe they are under God's wrath to the very end. They are not cast away or they are not reprobate because uh, Paul proved, he's like, I'm proof of that. I mean, Paul got saved after the stoning of Stephen. When I personally believe Jesus was about, when he stood, I believe he was about ready to do judge Jerusalem right then and Stephen stopped it. That's what I believe. But Good question. When Paul persecuted the church, mm-hmm. was he a member of the church? He was a member of, yeah, he was a part of apostate Israel. Understand. But yeah, but that's not the church. That He's he's persecuting. You know what yeah, he said? It was in, in a time of reformation. And obviously, um, you know, you had an apostasy that took place in Israel. And those who rejected Christ went into apostasy. But they fell away. Things, but- he did those things in good conscience, and he was right with God. He did those things in ignorance. He was right with God. Can you hear me okay? I can hear fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tell me this real quick, please. Mm-hmm. I don't have a timepiece in here. What time is it? Uh, one fifty. Yeah, we need to wrap this up. That's fine. I've, I've got somewhere to be at three, but anyway, um, I um, yeah, just a couple of things. You know, this is very interesting, and, and even though we disagree, I value conversation with you because you. You do know the scriptures, and even though we disagree, you are um, very good at presenting what you believe, okay? It's not a silly—sometimes you just get into things I get disinterested mm-hmm. in. There's no—I want the strongest opponent that I that I can to sharp—as iron sharpeneth iron, I believe this is how it's done. And I believe mm-hmm. the more—now, I'll, I'll say this, the more we have conversations like this, one of us, you or me, is going to have a faith crisis because mm-hmm. truth is going to surface. Okay, you, we can't cover this. is so multifaceted. But um, Paul said, "It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb." That's not the same body. That's, he's talking about the bondwoman. He's talking about he's talking about the the uh, the house of Israel. He's talking about Judaism. He separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. When he did that, that's not a continuation of your mother. That's a new bottle. That's the new garment. That's the new wine and this in the new bottle. That is the the same as the new cloth. I mean, he's going to present his church as a chaste version without spot or wrinkle, but that garment of that Jew is not going anywhere. It will be restored. That's yeah. that's just that's a Bible reality, you see. Well, look, you just so, use symbolism too in areas where the Bible didn't. And I, I think that's what's happening a lot is you're 
Um, I don't. Be, I, you don't have clear scripture, and so, but you believe something's going to happen a certain way. So you're looking at these stories and seeing it symbolized in there. But here's the thing. But what about you? But the thing is, too, we have places in the Bible that are definitely symbolic where the Bible tells us it's symbolic and what it symbolizes. And your crowd doesn't talk about it. Galatians four, when it talk gives the allegory of Ishmael persecuting Isaac, Paul said that's the Jews persecuting the church. Paul said, Paul said that. Nobody wants to talk about that dispensational side. You know, when Stephen was preaching, he gave the illustration, we've talked about this, of Moses when he presented himself as deliver the first time, they rejected him. But he came back 40 years later, and that time he delivered them. And the and Stephen said that um, the fulfillment of that was when the Jews rejected Christ at Mount Horeb. When God came down on the mountain, they didn't want to hear his voice. They didn't want to see him. And they and Stephen said that was the first rejection. And when Christ came during was the first that a century. Rejection or was that the embracing of an intercessor that that was a cushion between them and the power of God? Because he mentions that in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as well. Well, we'd have to go to Acts 7. But Acts 7, Stephen said that that was, the, that was symbolic of Moses coming the first time. And then him being thrust out by his brethren. And that's what Stephen said in Acts 7. And so when Jesus came to Israel in the first century, that was his that was him his second coming like Moses during that time. So um he's not he's not doing it again. He came and Peter said he turned every one of you from iniquities. And and uh he said that in Acts 3:26. Everybody's going to Romans 11, where he quotes Jeremiah, and they're still talking like that's coming in the future. Peter said it already happened. And I'm telling you, when you know, right now is the day of salvation for the Jew. When Paul quoted that verse, behold, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. That was an Old Testament prophecy to Israel. Their day of salvation is here. You do if, know, understand that I, I agree, if a Jew's going to go to heaven, he's going to get saved. You better trust Jesus Christ as his Savior. Right. In the, hey, in the in the tribulation, what is he going to have to do? He's something. He's there's going to have to be a there's something he cannot do, and that is take the mark of the beast. Okay, mm-hmm. he cannot do that, and he'll have to endure to the end. That's how you dealing with Matthew twenty four. He's going to have to endure because no flesh will be saved. But there's going to be uh, there's folks that are beheaded. I saw the souls. Uh, I think it's Revelation six of them that the martyrs that were beheaded. So those are tribulation saints, man, that that went through that. So um, it's funny that you brought up Moses. And you know, I think I've talked to you about this before, man. That's another one of those fractal things that just take take you right back to the plagues of Revelation, where Moses is rejected by his Jewish brethren, goes to Midian. He tried. He came to his own. His own received him not. John one eleven. That's Moses, the picture of Jesus Christ as a deliverer out of the. Uh, bondage of Pharaoh, and man, he goes to Midian. What does he do? Get a Gentile bride. He comes back on a beast of burden, just like Revelation 19 on the white horses with a rod of iron in his hand, and he's coming back to smite the Gentile world powers that oppress Israel. Now, and you see everything that tethers right back to the book of Revelation. Now, you can minimize it and deflect it if you want to, but at some point, you at what point do you realize 
there's something to this. Um, well, I, I I put everything in that symbolism there because the Bible gives it. Stephen gave it in Acts 7, but the, the return was in the first century. He, he tells Wait, us that. Did, did Stephen give the return with his gen, with with did he yes, give so that prophetical in, overview? Yes, in Acts seven, um, he said, um, talked about in Moses. Um, yeah, so it says in let's start at twenty. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months, and when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Moses was learning all the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty words and deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came to pass in his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, smote the Egyptian, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when the forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel lord. Uh, and it goes on about, and then uh, let's jump down to 35. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge, which was when he was 40 years old, the same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of an angel, which appeared unto him in a bush, which was when he was 80. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel, which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles given unto us, whom our fathers would not obey. He's talking to Jews here. He said, our fathers wouldn't obey him, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. So the first rejection was back then when they with their fathers and so right here they got another opportunity just like then and well i preached this a while back stephen shows them this is your next opportunity the deliverer has come and you know what they went they went to stone him they did stone him we see god standing and we see stephen making intercession for Israel, just like Moses had made intercession for Israel when they refused him and God was going to kill them. And Moses stopped God from killing him then. Stephen stopped God from killing him then. So again, that prophecy, it's there, but it's happened. Both sides of it has already happened. Stephen laid it out. We'll, I'll use that symbolism all day because we have Stephen under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost using it but you're taking it and applying it to something that's still to come. That's well, not what Stephen did. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think you did a bad job at all of what you did. Okay. Mm -hmm. But of course there's definitely more than one practical application that we can make out of that and tether that to so many things. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of scripture. But one thing that was left out was the smiting of the Gentile 
world powers that are oppressing Israel and all that stuff and the smiting of, you know, all the plagues in Egypt was left out of this. Now, I submit unto you that I see the type in what you're doing. And I see that with Moses mm -hmm. interceding, playing the part of Jesus, but I also see Jesus Christ standing up. He went to sit down at the right hand. He's his he the high priest stands up while he's still offering sacrifice. The sacrifice is offered. He's seated at the right hand of God. What's he standing up for? The only time you'll see windows in heaven open or door in heaven open is when something's going up, something's coming down. Same thing in Revelation four. Well, another he's standing up, mm -hmm. waiting to see if they if they would have received him, he would have came back and set up his kingdom on earth then. We'll so see that and, yeah. down and said it'll be another little couple of days. I'll I'll give you a couple of days to think about it mm -hmm. and we'll see how it goes. That was that's God's mercy and a divine second, third, fourth chance, however you want to call that. That is something that is worthy of consideration as well. Well, interesting thing. Any other time there's and you don't see this a lot, but whenever you see God standing in heaven, he's bringing judgment. We see that in Amos 9 when he says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door that the post may shake and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. So right there, you know, we see him standing in judgment. Um, that's what we see going on in Exodus 32 uh, when he was going to smite them then. So again, the only, the only time you can see him standing and other time you see him standing in heaven He's about to bring the hammer down and bring judgment. Well, there's no problem with that because he would have to do that. Who do you think he'd be judging if he came back right then? The it'd one stoning Stephen? No, it'd be wrong. No, I'm talking if no, if they didn't stone Stephen, they did. He didn't come right. back. Though. Yeah, if yeah. they would have accepted, they're mm -hmm. they're cut to the heart. He's mm -hmm. like, uh, that's how God's nature is, man. He reacts to what we do in, mm -hmm. in real time. You understand? That's. Right. Uh, God is synced up with his creation, man. He doesn't mm -hmm. determine any predetermined. He's got an objective that he will accomplish, mm -hmm. but his methodology with from point A to point Z can vary depending on whatever move we make on the chessboard that we make. Right. They're under conviction. I might be coming back. He stands up and says, nope, I'll sit back down. But it would have still been judgment. Mm -hmm. But he'd have had to wipe Rome out. Don't you know Rome would have would have been all over uh, that? Uh, try, you understand he right. he would he would have been coming back. So Stephen, there's a lot of things there. Yeah, Stephen <laughs> seemed to see when he saw Jesus standing. I think he understood what was going on. I think that's why he's saying, "Lord, lay not the sin to their charge." Now, here's something I I will say, and I think this is a this is a, a deep conversation. But obviously, what took place, you know, with the rejection of the Jews, the Gentiles, all that. You know, you can see in the Old Testament that God always knew that was coming. I do think there's examples of things in the Bible that uh, where there were contingencies. So, for that, we could have a conversation about what would have happened had Israel obeyed, and had Israel received the Messiah, I think there would have been a different outcome. And I do think Jesus well, would have um, no judged, that. yeah, judged the Romans. So, exactly. I think that's a good, yeah, I think that's a good conversation. But here's the thing, too: they did reject. So. You know, what does that mean? That means that now there's going to be things, some things are going to change, you know, and because if you don't like, for example, if Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit, then they would live forever. But guess what? They did eat the fruit. So now we've got a different outcome. Had Israel received the Messiah, some good things would have happened. Had they not, but they didn't. 
So now bad things are going to happen. And in the dispensational world, it's like, well, no, good things are going to happen anyway. No, I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case at all. I think there's good things going to happen. It's going to be, I'm, I'm terrified what's right around the corner for this world and for the Jew. Okay. And of course that gets into our eschatology, eschatological view, which tethers into all of this. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand a premillennial, you, you're going to put yourself, you know, again, we're, I got to go. I know mm-hmm. you do too, but, uh, <laughs> You'll put yourself right in the middle of a rapture if you don't know how to separate the raptures. Uh, it's just uh, absolutely there's there's a, there's a bit trip rapture for sure, but if not for you, not for the church. But I know I know we're getting yeah. <laughs> hey, that's another uh, conversation. I, I do respect you, uh, Tommy, and I appreciate you. Mm-hmm. I said something about you. I you you were saying good things about me, and you're cutting out. So I, I, said, I, I, I do, I do respect you. I okay. respect you as a, as a, uh, as an, as an opponent, I respect yeah. you. No, I, I feel the same way. And that's why I enjoy having these conversations. Um, I wish I could have more conversations like this with people and, um, you know, it not turn into just foaming at the mouth and hatred and stuff like that, because I do, I think they're very valuable and, and, and honestly, you know, the more I'm challenged, you know, the more I feel like it helps me strengthen my position on things. And um, I do. I think it's, you know, I, I, I feel like um, I've had other conversations publicly with dispensations before where it just I felt like it just caused more division uh, because, you know, the people were just kind of idiots and it got ugly and stuff like that. But I feel like this is the way it's supposed to happen. And I don't think people, whoever's, you know, to me, who if you're right, you shouldn't fear. You're not going to fear challenged, being challenged. Right. And, um, and so the thing is, people who are terrified of being challenged on this, it just shows me the lack of confidence that they have in their own position. And so um, people who sincerely believe they're right, usually see other people as sincere and feel like if they could present these things to them, they could win them over. And that's how I feel when I talk to people. And and I understand that, you know, there's, there's a lot to this. And so I think, you know, even though we disagree, I feel like there's sincerity, uh, you know, with you and, um, but yeah, we, we do have big differences and on, on certain things. And I think, if anybody comes away from anything, they'll know where those differences are and they can look into those things themselves. I personally believe my position uh, definitely takes a more literal view of the scriptures where I think yours is dependent on a lot of symbolism. And uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, things that um, are you know were spiritually fulfilled uh, that have already taken place that I think you would see as more physical. Uh, there's a phys- uh, looking for more of a physical fulfillment, and um, you know, and those are those are good conversations that yeah. I don't have all the answers for, but I'm definitely we searching. Need to be able to see both, and I also uh, I'm glad you're not with the uh, new IFB. I, I misrepresented you on that. I'm glad you cleared that up. Uh, yeah, there, no, there's hope for you. Yeah, no, I I that's the thing. I don't have a camp, okay? I, I, I really don't. I mean, uh, the new IFB, we don't want anything to do with each other. 
the old IFB, they don't know what to think about me because it's like I get along with them real good, but it's like I have these things. So it's like I'm not I I have I'm not loyal to a camp, you know. I personally like you know, I like the old IFB uh pre-trib camp better. I think um obviously there's exceptions, but I think that the independent fundamental Baptist world, you know, these pre-tribulations, I think some of the most godly people I have ever known are included in these camps. And I, they are wonderful people that I love dearly. I want to fellowship with. I feel like they have a lot that I can learn from. I want them to preach in my church because when it comes to living life, they know how to do it in a great way. I'm not going to invite them to preach on eschatology. I just, I just happen to disagree with them yeah. on that. But when it comes to things that are most important to me, I align with them. And, uh, you know, but in, in, in the new IFB world, I just, uh, I, I can't really function there. And, uh, yeah. you know, so that's, you know, that, that is what it is, but yeah. Well, um, we'll do this again whenever you, get ready to talk about something. I think we could uh, have some value in that. Let me know. I, I hate to have to run, but I should have yeah, probably been placing my shoes up a few minutes ago. Uh, press for time. You take care, sir. And uh, thank you again. Yes, sir. You I, take care. I appreciate you. Thank Pre- you. Yes, sir. Bye. All right.